So it is October 30th, 2011. Our message today is 30, 60, and 100. 30, 60, and 100. Tell me when you're in Mark 4. Amen, amen. A couple of you are there. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat while he sat out in, sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. That's pretty crowded when you have to hop into a boat so that you can have enough room around you to speak. But I've stood in this, uh, where they believe this place, this place is, and it's an amazing thing. You ever noticed on a clear, crisp evening, maybe somewhere out like by a greenway, where uh, there's a clearing of the trees, you can hear with perfect clarity what's going on on the other side of it. The way that God designed this setting is standing where this lake is, you are lower than the hills that are surrounding it. And because there are no obstructions, speaking from the lake, the sound just kind of naturally travels up the hills. Have you ever wondered how Jesus spoke to crowds of thousands? When you understand the setting, it makes perfect sense. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and birds came and ate it up. Come on now, say, ate it up. <laughs> there were a lot of things that my mama tried to get me to eat when I was little. She was only successful in getting me to eat hot dogs and sausage most of the time. <laughs> My dog got to eat up all of the broccoli, all of the cauliflower. There are some things in this world you want to eat up. And there are other things in this world you want to fight so that it doesn't get eaten up. Come on, if the seed is the word of God, we have to fight that the birds of the air don't swoop down and get it before it lands in our heart. Sometimes you hear a message like Wednesday night, a good one, one on identifying the harvest, but before... You get a chance to let that thing germinate in your heart and produce life before it incubates so that it can produce a crop. Something happens and we lose it. This first seed had birds come and eat it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Wouldn't you say, if we were going to say 30, 60, what should come next? 90. 90. Are you one of those people that has problems if all of the pencils are in the box, but there's one missing, you notice it? I told Matthew today that I noticed that this cord hung down from the speaker and we could see it, and the other one we couldn't. And Matt just kind of looked at me like... <laughs> There's a reason that it says 30, 60, and 100, and not 90. It's because the reader immediately, the hearer immediately anticipates the next number. And when you're anticipating, when you hear 30, 60, and you're anticipating 90, but you hear 100... It's supposed to communicate to you even more than you thought. 
The Word of God is this way. He will do more with your life than you could have ever imagined He would do. If you had told me when I was 18 years old and freshly born again that I would be standing in this place today preaching to these people, that I would have been the places in the world that I've been and seen the things that I've seen, I would have said you grossly overestimated my potential. But the gospel produces in us something 30, 60, and not 90, but 100, exponentially more than you ever could have hoped for or imagined, the Apostle Paul said. Let us skip down to the interpretation of this. Verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand the parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away that the word that was sown in them. What is Satan the father of? Lies. So how does he take away the word? Lies. He lies to you. Now almost everybody in this room will agree that the Bible is the word of God. And we say that. We've heard it. The Gideons have put them in our schools. They've put them in our hotels. We're used to seeing it. We all accept it. Unless it applies to us. We have no problem saying, oh, this is the word of God and it's true. Say, well, how does this verse apply to you? And that's where it gets a little more awkward, doesn't it? Satan comes and steals from people in church all of the time while we're sitting there going, uh-huh, that's right, that's right, amen, that's right. Because it never settles in our heart in a way that produces 30, 60, and 100-fold. We're ever hearing and yet never obeying. That's a real problem, isn't it? The biggest problem is that somebody in the world who's not heard this is not under the delusion that they have it. But because we hear it, we're under the delusion that we have it. Just because the seed hit the path did not mean this was a fruitful thing. <coughs> the American church has become a master of being a pavement parking lot and claiming to be a fruitful field. Because it's bombarded with the word. It can say the word. It can say the word with the best of them. But when it comes to actually doing the word, we have problems. How about this? Verse 16. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. In the American church, we do not acknowledge that people fall away anymore. We simply say they moved on to another church. And if you question that at all, people go, oh, are you saying that you're the only church? No, not at all. But God who brought you has to release you. He has to put you somewhere else. What are we doing most of the time when we just go from one group to another? We're avoiding accountability. We're avoiding what the Word says to us. It's fine to hear it everywhere until somebody can go, Brandon, that message last week you heard, how are you applying it? Now let me go somewhere where somebody cannot call my name. Let me go to a new group where they don't know what is happening. This has become the migratory American church. It's the same way in the workforce. People don't work somewhere 10 years anymore. They don't work somewhere 20 years anymore. We are a mercenary workforce. We go wherever we are paid the most. I don't blame you. 
I understand from a socioeconomic platform why that happens. The problem is we take that right back into the church. Why are you here? Because this is where I receive the most. This is where the children's church is the best. This is where the music is the best. This is where our sanctuary is the best. Instead of answering the question, I heard God's word. I'm supposed to be here and I buried it in my heart. Come on now, am I lying to you this morning? No. Is it quiet in here because we're thinking or you just don't know what to say? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, it's okay to agree out loud, even you white people. It's okay. It's okay for you to speak to me. It won't hurt my feelings. It is okay for you to be interactive. In the Bible, this was not sage on a stage. It was never supposed to be one exalted leader. In fact, your pastor was your brother, only separated from you by function. So how about this? Verse 18, still other seed, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Isn't that kind of what Miss Joellen prophesied to us today? Didn't she prophesy there were all kind of things in the room? Things that God didn't bring to you? It will choke you out. I watched a whole jiu-jitsu tournament yesterday. Thank you, Renan, for teaching myself. You know, it's an amazing thing. You can watch a young man be up on points, have an advantage in his position. You can watch him dominate a match, and in the last 10 seconds, you can slap a submission on him. And he loses the match. You know why? This is exactly what the kingdom's like. Paul wrote to the Galatian church and said, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? We need to be very careful that we do not allow things into our lives that get such a hold upon us that it is choking out our faith. Something happens and we get scared to lose, right? You would think that my truck being stolen, when you listen to some people talk, is the most tragic thing that ever happened. It's a truck. It's just a thing. Just if said, oh, well, he's being stoic. No, this is Christianity. That's Christianity. It is a thing. <coughs> Do we grieve more over our things or the people that are going to hell on our street that we've never talked to? Close your eyes for a moment. Whole church, close your eyes. I'll know if you're not because I'm staring at you. Right? <laughs> Remember, I can call your name here. Let's imagine we have a little boy now. This little boy is in a foreign country. You're picturing him, and he's cold because he doesn't have enough clothes. You see him rubbing his belly because he doesn't have enough food. This little boy has wondered if there is a God at all, and if there is, why he was left in this condition. Is that a moving picture? You open your eyes. Is that moving? Would you want to help that little boy? Now let's imagine he's your little boy. Does that change it? Does it change it for you if it's Daniel, Darren? Yes. See, it does, doesn't it? If we're honest, it does. Fred, does it change it if that was Brad and he's four years old? It does. As long as we don't connect in a personal way, it's okay. This is why you and I click next on the TV channel when you see the kids being paraded through. And then we excuse our apathy with, oh, those people are just stealing money in the name of those children anyway. That may be true. Why haven't we gone? 
Could it be that we have amassed so many things in our lives that we're scared that we have to maintain them? How many of you women have said you have nothing to wear this week? <laughs> One honest in the group. Two honest in the group. Did you notice that's not like raising your hands in worship? Did you notice that? That's more like a Baptist raising the hand. <laughs> Presbyterian. We have nothing to wear. Think about the things. How many of you will leave church today and go, gosh, I'm starving? Really? I'm starving. I'm starving and yet I'm 60 pounds overweight. How is that possible? Do you think that the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, can choke out our trust? Yes, it will cause you to never even consider the word that God is speaking to you. In fact, you're fine saying, that's true. It is the word, and it is real, and he'll do it. Which one of you somewhere out there is going to go do it? See, we have a way of acknowledging that it's true so that we excuse ourselves from the truth and saying, someone somewhere else will do it. Have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Anybody in here? Okay. I, I don't know why, you know. In the Christian church, you can find people that have seen all three Saul movies. So that's sad, but it's true. But you cannot find people that have seen the classics. I, I, don't, I don't get it. But look, even you young people, right, with no attention span, like, oh, look, a bird. Look. You should watch this movie. And the reason that you should watch this movie is it is about God's chosen people and the struggles that they were having in life just to live. And there's a particular poor milkman in it named Tevi. And Tevi is talking with the local magistrate. And the local magistrate is saying, Tevi, I've known you all my life. You're a pretty good guy, even though you're a Jew. You can see Tevi's contemplating that. See, this magistrate is also an oppressive force in his life. It's a strange contradiction because the magistrate likes him, and yet the magistrate's a Gentile, and Tevi's a Jew. And he says, look, I'm only telling you this because my boss is coming tomorrow. There's going to have to be a pulper. We're going to have to beat some people up. We have to make a show for them. It's important. I'm telling you because you're my friend, Tevi. How would you feel about that kind of friendship? So Tevi bursts into song because in the older days, this was how we expressed something, right? Heartfelt emotion. And Tevi begins to sing. And he sings to the Lord, Lord, why? Why is it always us? I know, I know, Lord, it is because we are the chosen. But just this once, couldn't you choose somebody else? How is it right that so few carry so much burden around the world while so many sit completely unburdened? How could that be right? The Christian church makes up evangelicals, you know. I don't know, what is it, 20% of the world's population, supposedly? No, it's not quite that. It's more like 14, 12 or 14%. But how many are actually applying the words of Jesus in any real or meaningful way? In our city, the largest churches, the very largest, cannot distinguish a Mormon from a Christian. They cannot boldly say Jesus is the only way to be saved. But what they can do is preach a message, 52 of them in a year, on God wants you healthier, wealthier, and happier. Do you think something's wrong with us, church? I do. 
And if you contrast us with the largest churches, we start to look good. But that is not the contrast, is it? The contrast is us with the Word, us with Jesus. And the question is not, am I applying this better than so-and-so down the road? The question is, am I applying this 30, 60, and 100-fold? Let's read this last verse. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the Word, accept it, and produce a crop. Hear it, accept it, produce a crop. Hear it, accept it, produce a crop. You know, when a Greek person says, I know, what they mean is, I have conceptualized it, I run through the schematic in my mind, and you are correct, sir. When a Hebrew-speaking person says, I know, he means, I have experienced it, and you are right. To the Greek, everything is in the mind, and to the Hebrew, everything is in your actions. So listen to how Luke says this. This is Luke 8.15. You don't have to turn there. It's the same verse. He picks up with the word good soil. Stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. They hear it, retain it, persevere in it, and produce a crop. This would really be the test for how are you doing. It's not did you hear it, but upon hearing it, did you hold on to it? Upon holding on to it, did you persevere in the truth of it? Did you fight to apply it, no matter what the resistance? And having done that, was there a crop that you could point to? That is the question. Do you realize that these words were sp spoken to all the people of faith, not just a select few special forces Christians? So if the seed is the word of God and the word went into a man's heart and changed his soil so that it was noble and it produced salvation in him, can we all agree that that's possible reading this? Yes. And so what, did the rest of you not agree? Can we all agree that this is true? Yes. Then what would it mean to have a 30-fold increase on that word of God that went into your heart and changed it? At the very least, that would be 30 times. Not that you sowed the word, but that you sowed the word, they retained it, they persevered in it, and they produced a crop 30 times. How many of you can look back and go, oh yeah, there's 30 people in my life that I saw born again, persevere in their salvation, and they went and did that for other people? How about 60? How about 100? And this was spoken to all believers. Have you ever wondered how we started with 12, one defected? We start then with 11, and we have a whole world full of believers now? Have you wondered how that happens? What if every one of you was responsible for another 30 who were responsible for another 30? What if some of you pushed harder than the minimum and were responsible for 60 who were responsible for another 60? What if some of you believed that God was as big as He said He is, and you were responsible through the course of your lifetime for 100 that went out and each found a hundred. Could you grow from eleven to engulfing a nation? This is why the early church prospered. And you know what? The devil worked against it. The devil tried to kill them, but the problem with killing a Christian was it was like oiling the machine. When Brandon died for the faith, it caused JJ to go, <laughs> I'm going to go find another hundred people to replace Brandon. 
This is how the early church grew. The more that they were persecuted, the more they persevered in it. But today, we believe we've done our service for God by sitting and receiving. We have the nerve to ask for heated baptisms. We have the nerve to complain about the padding in our chairs. Matthew and I have actually discussed for hours how to improve our sound quality. These are the things that we have to be concerned with. Really? You know why you have time to be concerned with those things? When each person's not bringing in others, that's when you have time to be concerned with those things. When there are no new people, no Evericas, walking in feeling the presence of God. Doesn't that add some purpose to the service? Come on, now that's what church is about. Church was never about you. It was about the next you. It was about the next person that you could pour into like it had been done for you. And when the master has no one to teach, he becomes less than a student. He has no purpose. A student at least is ever learning. But what do you do? What is Renan's gym if Renan has no students? It's boredom. It's chess. It's wondering whether you're doing the right thing in life. You bring in a student and all of a sudden the master rises to the occasion. Christians, who are you responsible for? Who have you mentored? Who did you go share your life with and it touched them and you care how they're doing? We live such isolated lives and yet we've got a few thousand friends on Facebook. That's not a puppy. It's too small to be a puppy. <laughs> this is how we concern our time. This is not what the book teaches us, friends. That may be what Facebook says, but that is not what our faith book teaches us. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter 2. Is that okay? Yes. Good, because even if it's not, that's where we're turning. Amen. See how democracy works in a church? Yes. I know I played the little video beforehand about the famous pastor and the politicians. I'm not interested in directing your vote. I'm interested in directing your attention to something. We have become so degraded in our society that we cannot distinguish the most obvious heresies on the planet. Look, there's a book in there called Kingdom of Cults. It was written by uh, Matthew Walters. There's another one called uh, from Bob Larson's Book of Cults. There's four or five textbooks in there. You go back 25 years and you tell me if any of these textbooks from men just 25 years ago would answer the question in that video the way that you heard it answered. Not one of them. But we have become so dilapidated, so infatuated with the approval of men that we can no longer stand and say the truth is the truth, even if it hurts your feelings. In fact, we believe that a pastor that hurts people's feelings is somehow to be marginalized. Jesus hurt nearly everybody's feelings he ever met. Friends, sometimes the best thing that can happen to you is you have your feelings hurt. Look at verse 8. We're going to pick up with a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. There are people, according to Mark 4 and this, that no matter how much message they get, 
The birds are going to eat it. The sun is going to scorch it. The wealth is going to choke it. The deceitfulness of this world is going to kill it because it is only those that have a noble soil in their heart that retain it, that persevere in it, and that produce a crop. But like arguing with a man about whether or not he's drunk, everybody seems to say they have noble soil even if there are no crops. Come on now, am I preaching to anybody? It's a funny thing. Get somebody born again, and the next six weeks they bring somebody new to church every week. Somebody been born again 60 years and they can't bring one person to church. Why is that? Why is it that the more we learn, the more we become acclimatized to Christianity, the less we seem to value it? The American church is dying, friends. It's growing in every way but the right way. And if you can't see that, I preached in a Methodist church a few years ago. And I felt so sorry for the silver-haired crowd. I really did, because when they were little kids, that church was something different than what it is today. And they knew it. And people stood up and walked out while I preached about the power of God. But not one person under 40 or over 40 did that. Only the people under that because they have never even tasted. They've simply accepted a form of godliness. And they have no idea what the power of God is. We've been inoculated from the real thing. Surrounded by all of the right words, none of the right actions. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. An alien and a stranger. The same man that calls you chosen, royal, holy, calls you an alien and a stranger. How much do you feel like an alien and a stranger? Most of the time we just fit right in. You're a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. You don't know whether they're a Christian or not because everybody seems to say it. You ought to stand out like a vagabond passing through. If everything Charlie Brown had was in his car right now and he was simply passing through this place, you really think you wouldn't be able to notice that? This is how Christians pass through the world. We're passing through as aliens and strangers. And for what purpose? So dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives. Where? Among pagans. Not in your spiritual safety deposit box. Not in the church aquarium full of all the caught fish. Not in the kiddie pool or the holding pond. He says, live such good lives among the what? Pagans. Come on now. In those days, we would say pagans were pagans. Of course, all you got to do is watch TV or walk outside and you find out they still are. You can't watch a commercial about Las Vegas without being attacked with every kind of hedonism in the world, can you? 
We are supposed to be the brightest, shining thing in the room, the game changer. But instead, we focused on blending in. Why do you think that that pastor answered that question that way? His daddy wouldn't have answered it that way. So why do you think he answered it that way? Somewhere, men of God have gotten intoxicated with the approval of the people rather than the approval of the Father. And you know why? The church loves it. We want to go where everybody thinks we're in the best possible place. Don't offend anybody. Don't step on any toes. I hope I'm one of the closest people to you in your life, but that better not be predicated upon me not stepping on your toes or you will not like me very long. I make it my ambition to the people closest to me. Matthew and I love each other enough to get downright offensive with each other, and we do it regularly. You know why? We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, not wanting either of us to be disqualified from the race for the prize straining with all of our hearts somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. We reduce this thing to a lottery system where any Jehovah's Witness, any Mormon, any demon that says Jesus is Lord is saved, then what on earth are we working for at all? How sad. It's really pathetic beyond description, but I need to move on to things that are righteous beyond description. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Friends, there is a day when the one who gave you the seed to sow, the one who put the book in your lap, He will visit us. And He will be looking for something. There is no investor, no one who ever said, Here, Mr. Farmer, here's the money to buy your tractors. Here, Mr. Farmer, here's the money to irrigate your crops. Here, Mr. Farmer, here's the money to buy and maintain your land. Here, Mr. Farmer, is the money to live on, eat, and clothe yourself, and I don't want a thing in return for it. It has never happened. The master of the universe comes and he wants a return on his investment. This is what Matthew 25 that Mike preached about is all about sheep and goats. It is what the parable of the talents is all about. An investment was made in you. That investment was made as the word of God was sown into your heart. You had to fight to retain it. You had to strain to persevere in it. And if you continue to, you will produce a crop or else you never got the right word. Friends, the right kind of seed will produce the right kind of flower 100% of the time. You cannot plant an apple seed and have a leopard come out of the ground. It will not work. Everything gives birth after its kind. So when you look around you and you see it's giving birth after its kind, then examine what kind it is and you know what kind of seed has been received. The American church can be characterized by selfishness. If it can be characterized by the prayer of Jabez, if it can be, which Jabez's prayer is wonderful. I don't know about the ridiculous fad that followed it. A lot of prayer in the Bible. Why did we pick that one? We want to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. This is why. If the American church can be defined by those things, then what kind of seed caused that harvest? <laughs> but let's not talk about them out there. That would be too safe, too convenient. Let's talk about you, here, now. So you hear a word like this, what do you do with it? Well, Wednesday you heard how to identify the harvest, how to find the strays, how to find those who are wounded, 
how to find those who are broken, who are hurt. I'd like to tell you that the call comes from above. You want to hear how the call comes from above? Because Jesus, who is above, said, Go ye into all of the world. His heavenly book said, Go into all of the nations. This is so easy. It is in all the 16s. Here's what I mean by that. In Mark 16, 15, Mark 16, 15, he said, Go into all of the world. That call came from above. It comes from all around us. In Acts 16, a man said, Come over here and show us how to be saved. Our brothers are crying out around us in Acts 16. The heavens are crying out above us in Mark 16. And in Luke 16, friends, even the tormented souls of those who are in hell are saying, please send somebody to tell us. That's not possible to send somebody to hell. What did Father Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. Come on now. I rather shouldn't say send them to hell. The people in hell are crying out that you would go to their relatives. The point is, is that there's a voice saying come or go or share the word coming from heaven on the earth and even under the earth. We find it in Mark 16. We find it in Acts 16. We find it in Luke 16. God was kind enough to put it in a way we could even remember it. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Where do you learn something like that? Where is this school of preacher tricks where you find out that the call comes from above? The call comes from beside you and the call comes from underneath you. Where would a man learn something like that to preach? I learned it from a man named Jim Elliott who gave us life in the service of Jesus. He's the one who preached that message. Two weeks before they speared him to death. But he said he would rather go give his life for Jesus than be condemned with the spirit of Laodicea that had come upon America. See, when they made movies about him, they didn't tell you everything about him, did they? He was disgusted, friends, with what he saw around him. And he was compelled to do something different. Because the word hit his heart and he had to go. And he persevered in it to the place where he lost his life. Are you in Hebrews? Yes. I'm not. <coughs> but you've prayed for me and now I've arrived. How about that? We're going to be in Hebrews 10. Let us pick up in verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. When you stood your ground in the great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Come on, Matthew. Do you remember what it was like to get thrown out of houses? Do you remember what it was like to have people call us a cult? What it was like to have those that we trusted most turn on us for only embracing the word? And they were the best days of our life. The very best. Most people say, oh no, we don't want those kind of times. Well, you may not want Christ or the fellowship of His sufferings because those kind of times show that you're with Him. One of my best friends was a straight-A student. Every father's dream. Valedictorian of his class. But he got serious about Jesus and his daddy threw him out of the house. When he walked away from a football 
position because the Lord told him to, it ended their relationship. Does that hurt? Of course it hurts. Is it worth it? And then the son. What have you risked for the gospel, friends? When did you stand side by side with those who were being persecuted? Have we sat in our lazy boy recliner, recliner spiritual lives and simply watched from a distance and agreed in abstention? that line in Gladiator. Young Commodus shows up. Maximus is out and he's just won the battle. And Commodus says, Oh, Father, I'm here! Have I missed the battle? He said, My son, you've missed the war. I'm just curious. Why should the Chinese church outwork the Americans? Why should those in India outwork the Americans? Why is it that if you're a Christian in any other land, you're persecuted. Why is it that those persecuted Christians who have nothing possess everything? Could it be that the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this world have been choking our faith? But we don't want to hear that. We have twisted the gospel into something that makes us wealthy. How sick. So that our lives are destroyed if we lose a car. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Come on, you want to get to people's heartstrings? Go take their favorite recliner. Go grab a dress out of their closet they haven't worn in 10 years and burn it in front of them. Yeah, we find out where idols are, don't we? You know, I've moved a lot of people. I've moved an awful lot of people. And when somebody nearly has a cardiac arrest because you drop a 45-year-old object, what does that tell you? But we're sure. We're just sure we're heroes. Aren't we? Friends, I don't want to make you feel bad. I want to show you what is available. I want to encourage you of what the Word tells us. Listen to how this passage finishes. You sympathized with those who were in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. What were you trading trouble for now? Security then. And if you take security now, what are you trading? Security later. See, friends, we were not called to be happy, wealthy, and comfortable. We were called to persevere, to retain, to fight, to produce a crop. Not sit back and enjoy luxuries in life. So, well, Eric, you're wearing ostrich skin boots and are not. Yeah, I don't see you up there in a burlap sack. That's absolutely true. I'm not going to go wear sandpaper with a Catholic monk just to try to show you how holy I am. I'm not going to put pebbles in my shoes and I'm not going to kiss some Pope's ring a hundred times. Holiness is doing what God has told you to do. Not beating yourself with a stick in a public street. But can you answer that question? Can you honestly say, I have produced the crop that He called me to. I have hit the mark. I have run the race and I have finished it. Can you say, I fought the good fight. I held on to the faith. I fulfilled God's purpose in my generation. Are we waiting for that to happen at some later date? My wife had a vision, and in the vision, the books were opened, and in the books, there were only so many deeds, things that your life was to set into motion. 
Your life was to set them into motion and they are recorded, friends. She didn't have that vision alone. Ezekiel had it and so did John. And Paul saw it and wasn't allowed to talk about it. Let me ask you, you got six days left to complete those deeds. Do you live like you live today? You got six months. Do you live like you live right now? You got six years. You got 60 years. Friends, at some point you have to acknowledge you get more relaxed about it, don't you? You don't know whether you have six days or 60 years. You just know you were called to work. Can you look back and say you've taken that seriously? Because I'm examining my life. I'm looking at it every moment of every day. You know what I was most grieved about? Standing there speaking with a policeman that was incapable of writing down a VIN number correctly? I am missing praying for people inside. That's what I was most grieved about. Two months ago, I don't know if that would have been the case, but something's happened to me. And I hope to God it happens to you. There is an awakening going on inside of me. There are only so many days in which a man can work. Night comes when no man can work. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Friends, get out your black highlighter. Go ahead and just take your sharpie to that verse right there. Because we're not living like it's true. You might as well just get your scissors. I'll give you my pocket knife. You cut it right out. Because we are not living like that's true. For that to be true, we would not be passing by opportunity after opportunity. I wouldn't have to beg people to prophesy. I wouldn't have to beg people to pray for folks at the altar. I would not have to constantly jab you to do the basics of the faith. You would be scared to death. You would miss your one and only opportunity. You would be looking for it every day. You'd wake up and go, Lord, is it, is it now? Is it now? You'd look around every corner for it. You would be hunting it like a man in the desert is hunting water if you believed this was the last week of your life. Friends, this is why he who loses his life gains it. But he who retains his life loses it. This is the most basic question in Christianity and it's become the most obscure. Are you here to receive? Are you here to contribute? Are you here to give your life away? Are you here to get your best life now? See, I pray. I pray that through crazy fat redneck preachers like me. There's a stirring that is happening in you. Because the reality is we ride today on the backs of men who did this work before us. We do. The 1800s produced men who went around the world and shed the blood that produced the revival of the 1900s. And all of their sons died in World War I and World War II and what we have been left with is something less than what they had. That's just the truth. America is not what it was 150 years ago. 
is not even close. What is preached in the pulpit today commonly would make the preacher of yesteryear vomit his lunch up. You know how I know this? Because when I go other places in the world, I see the pure gospel still being preached. I also see the blind eyes being opened. I see people getting out of wheelchairs. This is not religious speak. This pastor has seen and participated in all of those events. And when I come back to the States and I tell people about it, they say, why doesn't it happen here? <laughs> Do you want, where do you want me to start? Faithless, courageless, apathetic, insatiable selfishness. That's why it doesn't happen here. From a political standpoint, I believe in American exceptionalism. I'm a fan of Ronald Reagan. It's true. I, I like to call him Ronaldus Magnus. <laughs> Having said that, at some point it becomes a lie, doesn't it? Say we're the best, most blessed, greatest nation on the earth. Really? In whose eyes? Ours or God's? Whose eyes? At some point it becomes a lie. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. I want you to listen about the men who have answered the call before you. About God's generals. Men, you may never have heard their names, but like the Pharisees who built monuments to the prophets, we put their names on our theological centers. Somewhere in prestigious religious places, these men's names are engraved on stone. And we think we honor these men with monuments like that. And yet those same religious institutions are not producing anyone that would do what these men have already done. Their testimony is that of Revelation 12, 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That is the testimony of the men I'm going to read to you about. But their present cry, right now, if you could speak to them, what they would be saying is recorded in Revelation 6. Turn with me to Revelation 6. Tell me when you're there. In Revelation 6, starting in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. This means, friends, they maintain their testimony. It means that they heard the word, they accepted it, they retained it, they persevered in it, and they produced a crop. Because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, how long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Let's go through the exercise. Is this the Word of God? Yes. All right, four people in a church of 100 said yes. Is this the Word of God? Yes. 
you ever considered this was the word of God to you? Who wants to volunteer their son? Who wants to volunteer their daughter? When you dream of your child's future, is it doctor, lawyer, veterinarian? Who is crying and praying, Lord, take my son to the furthest reaches of the globe. Use him to gain glory for your name. And if they kill him, I pray he has courage to maintain the testimony. Oh, it's the word, it's the word, it's the word, it's the word for somebody else. When does it become the word for us? When do we get that serious? Oh, those are fanatical Christians. There is no other kind. There is no other kind. <coughs> Would you like to hear about some of the men? Yes. yes. You might not. Yes, I do. I'm going to tell you about them. And you know what? You can buy their biography. Suzanne, I'm going to get every one of them. Every man that I mentioned today, I'm going to get their biography. And Suzanne, I'll put it in the library for your reading pleasure. You can buy most of their autobiographies for under $3. That's about how much we value these men. Anybody heard of a place called the New Hebrides? Yeah, I had neither. It turns out that off the coast of Scotland, there are some islands called the Hebrides. And apparently, when these islands in the South Pacific, nowhere near Scotland, far South Pacific, were discovered, they reminded the explorer of the Hebride Islands off of Scotland, so he called them the New Hebride Islands. That's kind of crazy, huh? There is no further place you can go in the world away from Scotland than the New Hebride Islands, but they're named after the islands <coughs> off the coast. If you wanted to think about this chain of islands, you need to draw a line straight from Honolulu to Sydney. You got me? Honolulu, Hawaii, across to Sydney, Australia, and it falls right in the middle there. Some of you who have been in the Navy have sailed through these probably. It's not far from Fiji, Samoa, all of those places, long ways from Scotland. To the best of our knowledge, the New Hebride Islands had no Christian influence of any kind before 1839. They were discovered in 1600, but the gospel didn't go there. And you know why? They were cannibals. They liked to eat people. They also liked to kill their children. Infanticide was popular in their worship. And if your husband died in battle, look out, girl. You get to go meet him. To honor him, they're going to kill you. I wonder how a society like that could even survive. Well, even today, even though it's 450-mile chain of islands, even today there's only 190,000 people on all of them. It seems that John Williams and James Harris, who you probably never heard of, I hadn't heard of them, from the London Missionary Society, went out to go reach them in 1839. Both of these missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island of Iramanga, November 20th of 1839, within minutes of landing on the shore. Within minutes. That's a really interesting thing. Because there was another man named John Patton who heard about it. At the time, he was a teenage boy, like Judah, working with his daddy. And his dad was teaching him At the age 12, he started learning his father's trade. 
and he worked 14 hours a day. During these years, John was influenced by the devoutness of his father, who stopped three times a day to pray and skipped meals until after the workday was over so he had time to pray. Every evening spent two hours with the family in prayer. That was their daily routine. See, when John Gibson Patton heard about those two missionaries, he wrote in his journal, Thus were the new Hebrides baptized with the blood of the martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole world that he claimed these <coughs> islands as his own. The whole church world heard two missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals. And I said, we can't go back, nobody should go. But a boy who was about 15 at the time heard it and said, Jesus is claiming that island and covering it in his blood through those men. And it was born in his heart. And he knew he was going to go. So he began to prepare. And the most difficult thing that he wrote about was leaving his father. He says, my dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. He's almost 30 at this point. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that hurting journey are as fresh in my mind as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to that scene, his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks which all speech was suddenly vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you away from evil. Remember, he's sending his firstborn son to an island that had had one missionary attempt that ended in the cannibalization of both men that went within moments of arriving. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. Come on, charismatics. And in tear, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when I was about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing there with his head <laughs> uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. My heart was too full and too sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed a hill to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And at just that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the other side of the hill to see if he could still see me. He's able to get down before his father saw him. Said he watched his father, hat in hand, continue to walk home with arms raised in prayer for his son. I watched through blinding tears till his form had faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father or mother. The appearance of my father when he parted has so often in life revisited me vividly in my mind and does so now as if it had been such an hour ago. 
In my earlier years, when I was exposed to many temptations in youth, his parting form rose before me like a guardian angel. It is not Phariseeism, it is deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of the scene not only helped to keep me pure from the prevailing sins, but also stimulated my studies. It became my goal not to fall short of his hopes, my Christian duties, or following his shining examples. Before I tell you any more about John Patton, do you admire his relationship with his father? Yes. You might be sitting there thinking your father wasn't like that. How many of you have said we love our God He's a father to the fatherless? Psalm 66 says it. How is he a father to the fatherless? Who would say this about you? Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, and 9 tell us to impress the word upon our children. Tells them to talk about it when we walk along the road. When we lie down, when we get up, when we go in and out of our houses and in and out of our city gates. It makes it our life's ambition and we're sure that it's the word. It's just the word for somebody else. It's the word for a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker. And we forget that this is the almighty penetrating word that was sown into our hearts. I want to tell you about some of the kinds of oppositions John faced other than just having to break ways with his father. In the 10 years before he left, he began working in ministry. And because his heart was particularly drawn to the things of the Bible and not the things of this world, he worked in downtown Glasgow, among the poorest, among the most destitute. This is where he thought Jesus would be. So one of the men comes to him when he has now got his ministry training and he says, I am leaving for the New Hebraid Islands. He said he would be leaving a very fruitful ministry. Patton had served for 10 years as city missionary in the urban Glasgow among the lower income people with tremendous success. And hundreds of unchurched people were attending classes and services each week. One of his loved professors of divinity and ministers of the congregation where he had served as an elder tried to persuade him to stay in that ministry. And this is how he argued. Green Street Church was doubtless the sphere for which God had given me particular qualifications and in which he had so largely blessed my labors that if I left those now attending my classes and meetings, they might be scattered. And many of them would probably fall away. That I was leaving certainty for uncertainty, work in which God had made me greatly useful for work in which I might fail to be useful and only throw my life away to the cameras. Can you hear this today? Brandon, why would you want to go do that? You're being used right here. If you go, what's going to happen to Elizabeth? If you go, aren't you worried no one's not going to make it? Sure, the gospel says go into all the world, but he'll send someone else. Man's teachers told him not to go. And yet that's not the story that made me read about him. 
The story that made me read about him was the one that I thought was most convincing. In the absence of his father's direction, there was an elder in the church. The man's name was Mr. Dixon. And Mr. Dixon had been a fatherly figure to him, and this boy respected authority. He's now 33 years old. It is the last year that he would spend in his homeland. With the memory of John Williams and James Harris only 19 years earlier, Mr. Dixon exclaimed, The cannibals! You will be eaten by the cannibals! To this, John Gibson Patson reported, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus. And it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrected body will rise quite as fair as yours. Both these men have gone on to be with the Lord. Which do you think is most proud? This kind of spiritual moxie. It marked his whole life. But this is not the end of this man's journey. He married. Got on a boat. And he and his new wife of only a few months set out for the new Hebride Islands where no one had ever been. Three months after their arrival, a son was born. February 12th, 1859. But 19 days later, his wife died of a fever. And in the 36th day, John Gibson's firstborn son's life, the baby died. Wrote in his diary. Before I tell you what he wrote in his diary, can you honestly say at this point you wouldn't be going maybe God didn't call me here you've been you've been there less than four months and your wife and baby have already died and you're left alone the word of God's true yes, yes. so when James 1.8 says a double minded man is unstable in all of his ways and all he does that's got to be talking about someone else huh Psalm 33.4 tells us the word of God is right and true and the Lord is faithful in all he does. And we believe that until we have to live like it's true. Listen to what this man wrote in his diary. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. It was very difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked to the Lord for help. I persevered, struggling in his work. I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such visitations, wherein God calls away the young, the promising, and those sorely needed for his service here. But I do know and feel that in the light of such dispensations, it all it becomes all to us to serve out our blessed Lord Jesus so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. It sounds like when the man read Philippians 3.11 and said, I wager all that I might obtain to the resurrection of the dead and share in the fellowship 
of his sufferings that I might know him. Amen. How are we feeling when stacked up with men like this? Would you like to hear how his life ended? Yes. During many years of deprivation, danger from natives and disease, he continued with the work, and after many years of patient ministry, the entire island of Anawa professed Christianity. By 1899, he saw Anawa New Testament printed and the establishment of 25 out of the 30 New Bride Islands had missionaries on them. Did his life matter? Was it a waste? Was it difficult? Really, how should our lives be any different? Galatians 6.9 says, Do not give up. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. This man was not martyred. And I read to you about martyrs crying out to the Lord. But wasn't he martyred? Didn't he die a little bit for the Lord every day? Didn't he face death all day long so that someone else could face life? I'm not saying you need to go get killed. Be very well known. I'm saying that it requires your death every moment or else we're not living as Jesus lived. You realize he came for life, but to give us life, he had to die. We go everywhere hoping to spread life, but to do it, you have to die. His contributions didn't stop in the New Hebride Islands. Anybody know who the Aborigines are in Australia? You know, there was a time when the government seriously considered exterminating them. Not any different than Hitler. You know what the chief voice of opposition was? They said, these people are subhuman. He said, I beg to differ. I showed up and I met cannibals in the New Hebride Islands and they're all Christians. There's hope for the Aborigines. You're wrong. And he turned that government's <coughs> mind around. One man. So was his loss worth it? How many lives? How many lives? Matt, come up here while I tell him about Jim Elliott. You know the story of Jim Elliott. If you haven't, watch the movie, Into the Spear. If you really want to be blessed, go into our library, get the book, Through the Gates of Splendor. You will read all about Jim Elliott, but let me tell you what you want here. First off, you've heard me quote my favorite quote of Jim Elliott. Does anybody know what it is? He gives what he cannot... Y'all are close. He is no fool who gives away that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott wrote that in his diary right before being speared. The passage that appeared before it was this one. It's amazing how we clean these things up, isn't it? I've been quoting that for years without understanding what really motivated the man. Listen to the portion of his diary before that statement. So what if we, the well-fed church in the homeland, need stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on the blank books, on their bank books, and in the dust of their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon. And God has rightfully, has a rightful way of dealing with those who have succumbed to the spirit of Laodicea. 
Isn't it interesting that the very churches that claim him as a missionary out of them, he said this about? By the way, do you know you can find John Patton's name on a Presbyterian seminary today in Victoria, Australia? How many hundred and fifty years go by before we find another one? Didn't Jesus say something just like this? Didn't he say we give approval that we're the descendants of the man who killed the prophets by building tombs in their honor but not acting any differently? Matthew 23 does say that. See, we hold these men up as heroes, but we do not do what these men did. We don't even come close or make a reasonable attempt at it. Halloween's tomorrow night. The biggest threat that the Christian world has ever seen. So, we pull down our shades. We turn off our lights. We lock our doors and say, we're holy, we won't participate. You do what you want to do, okay? I don't like Halloween at all. I wish it didn't happen. But when the Bible tells me to go into all the world and I don't have to go that night, they're going to show up at my house. <laughs> I'm not going to lock my doors and turn off my lights. And if you thank me unholy for that, I'll let you take it up with Jesus. The devil's done half the work for us. He's bringing them to us. I think my favorite quote, and our hearts can only bear so many of these, and if one wasn't enough, ten is not going to be enough. My favorite quote comes from a man named C.T. Studd. How can you forget a name like that? <laughs> C.T. Studd. I, you know, I would skip the first name and the middle name too, and I'd just go straight to Pastor Studd. <laughs> Except Stud wasn't a pastor. Stud was a businessman in England. And you guessed it, just like all of the others. Actually, Jim Elliott lived in this century. Uh, 1940s, 1950s is when he was killed. From Oregon. But this guy, C.T. Stud, was born in 1860, died in 1931. He was a businessman. And the World Evangelization Crusade spreads gospel seeds all across Africa, Asia, and South America, was founded upon his gravestone, so to speak. Might never have heard of him, but listen to this. I personally think that Keith Green may have written a song based on this quote. It's funny. We both heard it. We know Keith enough to know he went to Christ for the nations. He probably knew who this was because the similarity is just too big. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting has passed. Should such men as we fear, before the whole world, <laughs> I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We have the real holiness of God 
not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts of preachers. We will have masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. Come on, friends. C.T. Studd was a businessman who sold everything that he had and became a missionary. And upon his work, we are seeing revival in all of those countries today because he dared to do something. Is it possible that in this group of 100 people, there's really not one person who will dare to do something amazing? We all sit around and say, we don't know where the harvest is. Well, Mike told you. The Bible tells you. We sit around and say, well, God will do it. We believe it. And the word of the Lord to us is, I will do it through you when you die to your dreams and start living to mine. Friends, we're going to close in song. This is how we've been doing this during this revival season. I want to give the Lord the chance to do whatever he wants to do. If you've hit your prime, if you're running in full stride right now and you've gotten everything you could glean, then you're dismissed. If, like me, you feel like there's a little left to be had, then stay in worship with us. This will not be an endurance contest. That's not the point. If you're a guest and you're scared, I'm alleviating your fear now. This is simply we're going to worship. And we're going to let the children out. And those who want more will get more. And those who feel like you got the bowl and it's time to run with it, that's okay. You can do that. Nobody will think the less of you for it. We all have to go home at some time today. I just don't want to go home in the same way we did yesterday. Y'all stand to your feet. Let's worship. Thus they were baptized with the blood of the martyrs. And Christ hereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. We are most obviously in the spirit of evangelism in our church. People are for the first time considering the mighty call of God upon their lives. In the last few weeks, we've seen something like 20 people filled with the Holy Ghost quite a few sayings without a message being preached. I want to talk to you about a method of evangelism that God himself designed. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and upon your gates. When we begin to live 24 hours a day, seven days a week in love with God's Word, we won't be able to help but see people saved. But as long as evangelism is an event, and missions is a trip, and church is a service, we've compartmentalized our lives into something other than Christianity. 
when he is your undying passion, he is all you want to talk about. You don't change the subject when martyrdom comes up. This is evangelism. Because others will see what your life is about. And they will want it. Not everyone, but some will. Jesus said, let your light shine. Friends, these lights make no noise. But their effect is seen everywhere. So I like to say it this way. Witness everywhere you go. And whenever it's necessary, use words. If what you and your wife are talking about is Jesus, people will hear it. If what you and your son are talking about is Jesus, people will hear it. If what you and your friends are talking about is Jesus, people will hear it. If while you're doing jiu-jitsu, you're talking about Jesus. If while you're running, you're talking about Jesus. If while you're at work, doing your calculations, you're thinking about Jesus, someone will notice. And 30, 60, and even a hundredfold become something that you walk in normally. 